Hello, hello, what's up, what's good? Ni hao, bonjour. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most adventurous, creative, interesting people in the world. Everyone has a story, each person a scholar. We have a fun show for today with a 2020 recap episode featuring two spectacular women. First up, we had British adventurer, conservationist, and speaker Holly Budge, followed by an amazing pilot, Patty Wagstaff. Two women who constantly are seeking out new forms of excitement. We start off with Holly, who was the first woman to skydive Everest and to summit Everest, and is the founder of the charity How Many Elevants. When you think of Holly, you need to be prepared to be inspired to think big. She's an adventurer with a couple of world records under her belt, including being the first woman to skydive Everest and race 1,000 kilometers across Mongolia on semi-wild horses and has raised over 400,000 pounds for charity. She doesn't stop there and is passionate about elephants and is educating and inspiring a global audience about the devastating impacts of the African elephant ivory trade. Our experiences are incredible and very fortunate to have her on the show. So let's go ahead and bring back Holly and let's learn. On that first jump, on that first jump, how, yes. much, how much anxiety did you have on the flight up? Do you know, that is such a brilliant question because my anxiety was huge. I mean, I'm, a, <laughs> okay. I'm quite an anxious person anyway. And um, yeah. just just the thought that, you know, the higher you get in the plane, knowing that, you know, you are going to jump out of it. Um, yeah. And I re- remember when I learned to skydive, I would watch the tandem masters and the cameramen and the, the guys that were being employed. And they seemed so relaxed and they're all laughing and joking or some of them are even having a little sleep on the way up, you know, just just mm. while flying up to altitude. And I used to think, geez, how are these guys so relaxed? And yeah. And then when I started, you know, jumping uh you know, every day for quite a few months. It's amazing how normal jumping out of a plane could become. Yeah. And I used to say to people, like, I don't think my heart rate changed much uh, from, you know, getting up and cleaning my teeth in the morning to jumping out of a plane. I think you can get very used to, uh, you can you can really uh, step out of your comfort zone and then that becomes the new normal. But Certainly with skydiving, you don't it, it's it's a dangerous place to be if you get blase with it. That's when it can really uh, bite you in the bum. So you've got to obviously keep your wits about you. But I definitely became one of those those people that was relaxed and laughing and joking around in the plane. So um, but on my first jump, I was yeah, I was petrified. It's 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 a total assault on on all of your senses skydiving. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's interesting. How you, very interesting how you mentioned that here it is an exhilarating sport, and yet you stay even keel. Your your anxiety is low. You're calm. It, it's 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 remarkable how you can do these amazing things, these exhilarating activity, but you still stay calm. It's almost like when you're you know when you're in the fire, or you're, you become real relaxed, and nothing can phase you. Which looks like it it has helped you throughout life, and it's almost as if everyone should skydive just for for that, for that very reason. And that skill and that confidence took you to. Another just incredible adventure, and if skydiving is not enough and becoming a skydiving photographer is not enough uh, exhilaration and excitement in your life, Everest. So you have you have two unique stories about this yeah. legendary legendary mountain. What are the two different experiences that you have with Mount Everest? 
Yeah, so um, I became the first woman to skydive Mount Everest. And um, more recently, uh, three years ago, I um, climbed to the summit and summited Everest. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I heard about the opportunity to uh, take part in this world first expedition to skydive Everest, I just knew that was an opportunity I, I just didn't want to miss out on as a skydiver. You know, getting the opportunity to skydive next to the world's highest mountain, it was like, I'm definitely in for this. So I rang up the organiser and he said, um, you know, there's no other women signed up at this point. So I knew that was my hook for getting sponsors on board. And that was the yeah. only way I could do this was was to get sponsored. Um, and so I said, yep, yeah, count me in. And he said, brilliant, Holly, that will be £24,000. <laughs> yeah. And I nearly fell off my chair and I didn't have £24,000, um, you know, just sitting there waiting to be used on an adventure. Yeah. So, and I said, yep, yeah, absolutely. Sign me up, count me in. And I just knew that I would give give it everything I'd got to get those sponsors on board. So I think there's a, a sort of really... Uh, important lesson there that I did learn early on that say yes and then worry about the finer details after you've committed Um, that's kind of how I've lived my whole life really going forward Um, so yeah I did I managed to get the sponsors on board and we um, jumped out of a small aircraft at 29 and a half thousand feet just higher than the summit of Everest and the aircraft was a Pilatus Porter and it had flown in especially from Switzerland for this jump and it had never flown to that altitude before so it was a first in that respect as well because we didn't know if the aeroplane was going to get up up to uh, to the altitude we wanted um, and also it was quite a funny story because when the aircraft arrived in Nepal, um, it had taken five days for the pilots to fly it from Switzerland. And when it arrived, the um, Nepalese aviation officials said to the pilots, you now need to do a, a course and a written exam to prove oh, that you actually fly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's important because this uh, – this is double the flight or double the altitude of a typical jump and yeah absolutely. yeah yeah definitely. And it's, it's the same almost the same height that or the altitude that you would take if you're flying in a commercial plane across the ocean yes it is yeah yeah so my parachute was three times the size as my normal chute the chute that i would have jumped in new zealand when i was working there um the parachute i used for this jump was three times as big to make up for the um the thinner air um so what i say to people is if if the altitudes mean nothing to you i say when i was in new zealand i was jumping out of an airplane at 12000 feet and here i was landing at 12500 feet oh, yeah yeah so um just to put it in perspective but the actual freefall time was the same as a normal skydive so it was just same proportions as a normal skydive just just much higher yeah, and this was just because I know when you say skydive Everest can be confusing. Like, what what is exactly does it mean? Are you landing on it? But this was you taking photos of the mountain, and in a typical traditional jump, like you said, the same distance, but taking photos of the mountain. Yes, so we didn't land on the mountain. Um, so we actually landed in a disused um, runway, and that was quite an interesting experience because 
they were still like picking rocks and stuff off the the runway the morning of the jump what time of year was this uh october okay so um and it was the the runway was perfectly big enough for us to land on but it was really important that we actually made it back to that runway so there was very few safe areas anywhere else that we could have landed so um so actually that that was a big part of my story um what happened on this jump nothing could have prepared me for because I actually fell out of the airplane (laughs) so the door opened it was as I said 29 and a half thousand feet um my camera flyer climbed out onto the camera step I was giving my count ready set and the next thing I know the pilot has held up the stop sign behind me saying don't let the jumpers out Oh. And unbeknown to, you know, I obviously hadn't hadn't seen him hold up the stop sign and I had too much momentum on my go and I actually fell out of the fell out of the plane. So people say was skydiving Everest the most incredible experience ever. Um, no, it was it was really quite terrifying. <laughs> yeah, harrowing. Yeah. Um, and the reason it held the stop sign up is because the clouds had rolled in but when you I've I've now learned from doing a lot more mountaineering is um certainly in the Himalayas when you're at altitude the minute you see those clouds within a very short space of time you know you can be completely engulfed in in those clouds yeah uh, so we had almost complete cloud cover over the ground so I had no visuals on where that landing area was below me so that was really stressful um i came through the clouds at 18000 feet pulled my parachute um and then i was just hell bent on finding this this landing area this little strip so you're descending <laughs> blind you can't see your exactly your that's it yep 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 um, and I and, and then I decided to take my oxygen mask off at 18,000 feet after I'd deployed because it was obscuring my vision. You know, I, I it felt fine, but I was still pretty high at 18,000 feet to be without yeah. oxygen. Um, so I think there's there's something important in that too. Is when you are skydiving, whether you are a beginner or an experienced skydiver. You know, there's no one there to ask. You're you're on your own. Yeah. So you really do have to back yourself to make good decisions and, and believe in the decisions that you've made. Um so yeah, I decided to take the oxygen mask off and and to to find this runway and I did manage to get back there. And about two minutes after I landed, it was complete whiteout. You couldn't see two or three meters in front of you. And I felt very fortunate to walk away from that jump. About three days later, the same thing happened with another group of skydivers on our trip. And the pilot had held up the stop sign. But unfortunately, they'd all just gotten out the plane. One lady broke her back and her femur. Had, and she, cause they, the cloud for them went all the way to the ground. So well, you through. mentioned earlier that in the in the Himalayas and, and any any tall mountain range, yep. storms come storms come in and out yep. just extremely quick, extremely fast, and you you have to time it right. And a lot of times it's out of your control. Yep, absolutely. So um, yeah, stuff stuff uh you know happens as you said, it happens quickly. That's <laughs> that's just it's incredible, and it's it's also interesting to hear. This is another time of you kind of taking the leap and trusting in yourself and figuring out later. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that that trip also raised a great deal of money for charity. Over three hundred thousand dollars was raised for charity, and we sent computers um, out to local schools, and an internet connection was set up in one of those schools so it was an incredibly worthwhile trip outside of of the adventure itself and it also generated a huge amount of media around the world um i did six live tv interviews in 24 hours after wow. i arrived back in the uk <laughs> that was probably the scariest bit doing <laughs> on cbs and cnn and they said don't worry you're just going out live to america and I was just in a room with a camera. Um, no, you know, it was just myself in the room. And they said, don't look anywhere else but that camera lens. <laughs> and then the lady that was um, interviewing me in an earpiece, she asked me, how did I acclimate? And I just didn't know what that meant. And I was a bit hot around the collar at that moment. And um, so for those of you that still don't know what acclimate or don't know what acclimate means, it means acclimatize in American, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, you'd know. Um, but, yeah, that was that was quite a funny moment. So I, I answered that in a very British way. And I said, very well, thank you. And you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've oh, never done any TV or radio. I was really just put straight in there so it was a really steep learning curve at that time well now i know though that i know if you ever answer like that to me i'll have to rephrase the question <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> this was obviously such a significant event you're like i gotta go back i gotta go back and i gotta actually climb the dang mountain yeah so tell me about that yes yeah, so um so that, that was in 2008 when I became the first woman skydiver of Everest and the first person was about three seconds in front of me so we were we were the you know in the same plane as it were yeah. um and that's when I first laid eyes on Everest I've never been to the Himalayas before that and I just knew one day I would be back to have a go at climbing um Everest but I didn't know anything about climbing big mountains I didn't know anything about climbing but I didn't that didn't put me off because I knew that I could uh, try and learn how to mountaineer to a level that I could go and, and go back to the Himalayas and start climbing some of the mountains out there so that's what I did I went to America and did a, a mountaineering course and climbed uh, Mount Rainier and then I found myself back in the Himalayas. Um, I climbed Mira Peak, which is a six and a half thousand meter peak. And I thought it would be a good idea to snowboard back down from the summit. <laughs> Quite frankly, not one of my best ideas. Crevasses and, and all sorts going on. So um, definitely no chairlifts, bars or restaurants on, on those mountains. And then I climbed Burunsi, a seven thousand meter peak the following week. And that gave me a taste of that was my first taste of of climbing big mountains, very exposed ledges. I've got this fantastic video clip of um, me having to walk across this tiny little ledge with these vast drop offs, probably a thousand meters or more um, down the side. and, And we're just shuffling across these little ledges. Those two mountains I found, um, and I, I don't mean this arrogantly, I just mean it It was just um, the way it worked out was um, I just, I was really good on those two um, mountains at altitude. Like my body seemed to deal with the altitude really well. So um, you did, when you actually did acclimatize very well, thank you. 
Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> but people were saying, well, hang on, how? Because I got to the summit uh, way before the rest of the team on both of those mountains. And people were saying, well, you know, how how are you doing that? What are you doing to, to make that happen? And I said, well, I'm not really sure. And now I realize uh, what I was doing. And it's a technique that I've I've um, actually come up with now. It's it's I call it the shadow step. And what it is, is when you leave a high camp um, to, to go for the summit, it's it's generally dark because you leave, you know, late at night or in the early hours yeah. to give yourself plenty of time to get to the summit and back down again. So there's nothing to see. It's cold. So I slotted in on those two mountains just behind the Sherpa that was in front. And when he moved his leg, I moved mine. When he moved yeah. his leg, I move mine. And it sounds incredibly simple. And it is. But what that did was it just kept my mind really quiet. So it's a bit like drafting, like the road bike, the road cyclists when they draft. But it's like mental mental drafting, drafting for your mind. Yeah. Because when you're at altitude, um, you know, you those negative voices can come thick and fast if you get behind the group. If you feel that you can't catch the group up or you feel that you're you're a bit on your own or you're not good enough and it's really hard to get rid of these these negative uh, voices once once they come and I've as I mentioned earlier I, I definitely um I'm an anxious person and that 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 anxiety really presents itself whenever I go to high altitude and so I'm really aware of that now so this technique just keeps such a quiet mind for me and it's kind of mindful. You get in a real groove of, of just following the feet in front of you. I'm a little less selfish about it now. When I'm, I'm climbing now, I, I rotate with my climbing partner. So I'll go in front. They'll follow my feet for a bit. And it's just I've tried it with running. I've tried it with hiking. Um, I would urge anyone listening to this just to give it a go. It's, it's such an incredibly simple technique. Um, but but I've I've had people get in touch with me and say, Holly, you know, I've just done a personal best for a 10K run because I was just running behind these the, the person in front. I was just following their feet. Yeah. It, and, you know, it's so much of it is is like you mentioned, you're shutting your brain off. You're not thinking anymore. You're just doing. And, yep. you know, a lot of times in sports, you say, don't think, just do it. And yep. you're you're not worried about having to, to clear the snow. You're just stepping. And I know that I've done that, like you said, in races. If you just follow the person in front of you, you kind of zone out. Your body's yep. doing it, and you stop worrying about the pains and the differences and the difficulties. So, yep, because your mind can really, you know, as we all know, or most of us know, your mind can play absolute havoc with you. So if yeah. you can keep your mind quiet um, it, it, and just do repetitive movement, um, you know. I'm not saying it's easy because it's definitely not climbing any big mountain is 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 not an easy um task but but um that that really has helped me tremendously and I use that technique on every every mountain I climb now. Everest, Everest took me 47 days in total to um to climb. Um and it was an incredible experience in many ways. Um it's quite an interesting mountain in 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 lots of ways as well. Um but I climbed as a two-man team and me and my climbing partner um, were able to sit on the summit of Everest for half an hour with the summit to ourselves. 
Oh, so wow. that was just and what who, who was your climbing partner who was your climbing uh, partner yep so my climbing partner is called jang Bu, and he's a sherpa and we've climbed on many different mountains where we've worked together um because i've led expeditions in the himalayas and i've i've climbed with him on on several mountains um so i climbed um everest with him and, and he's just he's an incredible guy oh incredible incredible now another big adventure you've done is you've you've raced horses across Mongolia. I mean, another another one of those sentences that I read is just an incredible sentence. What an epic trip! Uh, what was the reason for this trip, and what was that experience like? Yeah, so the Mongo- Mongolian Derby, the Mongol Derby. Um, when I got back from skydiving Everest, um, it's quite a common thing to get the post expedition blues. I've spoken yeah. to a lot of adventurers about that, and and it's definitely a a common thing. But fortunately for me, it didn't last too long. I, I got a phone call two weeks after getting home to say, hi, Holly, would you like to take part in another world first adventure? And I said, yes. What is it? And they said it's a thousand kilometer horse race across Mongolia on semi wild horses. And I said, absolutely, definitely count me in. So oh, yeah. luckily for me, I had the skill set. I've, I've done lots of uh, horse riding. Um, some people learned to ride specifically for this race, which was pretty challenging for them. Um, but it was just the most incredible experience to have the freedom to ride a thousand kilometers across Mongolia, one of the world's last great wildernesses. Wherever mm-hmm. the eye can see, you can go. There's very few boundaries or fences or gates. Um, and it was it was a pretty intense race in many ways. I rode for nine days, 13 hours a day. I rode a total of 25 horses. Um, and there were two rules to the race. One, you couldn't ride at night because the terrain was too dangerous. And the, the second one was you couldn't ride uh, one horse more than uh, 40 kilometers or thereabouts. So there were checkpoints all the way along along the way. And people had donated their or you know volunteered their horses for this race so any horse that we rode paid for a year's worth of schooling for a child in the family that owned that horse um yeah so so that these horses i mean they're they're really tough hardy animals there's dead animals everywhere in mongolia like dead horses all over the show Um, and it really is survival of the fittest um, and I actually learned the word racehorse, crazy horse in Mongolian because some of the horses I was riding were, were quite slow. Um, and then I it really became exciting because I started getting uh, some pretty feisty animals. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's 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 many stories I can tell you about Mongolia, but it was it was a um, it was an incredible adventure. Very raw. Excuse the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wasn't Holly incredible? To hear the interview in its entirety, check out episode 47, which was first released May 7th. Next up, we have Patty Wagstaff. And calling her simply a pilot seems to almost understate who she is. She is a stunt pilot. She is a pilot trainer. And her aeronautical resume is impeccable. To Patty Wagstaff, the sky represents beauty, freedom, and challenge. She's a six-time member of the U.S. aerobatic team, and she's the first woman to win the title of U.S. national aerobatic champion. She grew up around airplanes and has assisted 
the Kenya Wildlife Services, who protect Kenya's wildlife and other natural resources from poachers, and also flew for CAL FIRE to help combat the dangerous mountain fires in California. She is an amazing woman and was extremely lucky to have her on the show. So let's go ahead and bring back Patty and let's learn. Now your first bush flying experience ended in a crash. How did that experience change you both personally and professionally? That's a good question. I, um, yeah, we, we did crash. I just thought the guy was an idiot and, <laughs> you know, I'd been around, I'd always had a really, even though I'd never, um, taken lessons or anything, I always had a really good feel for airplanes. And when I was a kid, I always listened to my dad, talk to his friends and I'd help update his manuals. And I just always loved being around airplanes. So I knew that I knew it was pilot error, you know, and yeah. I knew that I could do better. And so it kind of made me take stock and say, you can do this. You know, you could do this better than this guy. Why is he doing it? Why not you? And I was in the perfect situation living out in western Alaska, out in this bush, small bush town. And, um, you know, so I, I uh, in a way, it was a perfect situation because I could get so much knowledge from, from the bush pilots. Um, and that's when I that's when I started. So um, maybe, you know, I, I think I might have started anyway but that really was the impetus that that got me going well hey i i think that anytime your motivation is well this guy's an idiot i think that's great motivation because <laughs> i've done it i've done it many times in my life i've thought i can do better than this person they're an idiot so i i, I definitely support it is that. good motivation <laughs> you're right <laughs> how did you first move into then the world of stunt piloting and aerobatics I um I was always interested in it, but I'd never seen it growing up. Um, you know, we never went to I we lived overseas. I never went to an air show. Um, but I was always interested in it. Um, for some weird you know reason, just because I liked speed and I liked gymnastics and standing on my head and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, that's a logical place to take an airplane. Um, you know, I I went to an air show. Um, after I was learning to fly, I decided I'd go go to an air show and then um, see what it was like in a in a competition and and I just knew instantly that's what I wanted. Oh. Everything about it, you know. As a kid, I wanted to be in the circus, and this is really oh, kind wow. of air shows are a flying circus. Wow, wow! I mean, that, and that's a, that's definitely like you said, it is a flying circus. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it really is, and and you know you're with a group of people. You don't always see the same people every weekend, but with, you're with this group of people, and and uh, you know it's sort of a, a family. I call it a dysfunctional family, and um, yeah, so it's it is it is a, it is a circus. While flying those stunts, you've got to have complete trust in in the ability of 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 yourself, but also the yeah. plane. Also the plane. So how yes. have you managed to make sure that you are having faith and trust in both yourself and the plane? How have you managed to have that over your career? Well, you really do have to have complete trust. You can't be flying low to the ground, um, doing aerobatics and and be thinking about other things. You can't let extraneous thoughts come in of doubt or um, any any kind of insecurity. So airplane wise, I've always flown good equipment. Um, I've never flown junk. Um, that's really important. Um, I've taken good care of my equipment, never spared, you know, no expense spared on maintaining it, which is also really important. 
Um, and then for myself, I practice a lot and I take it very seriously. And, you know, we all start up high doing these things up very high. And then as you get better, you can start bringing them down lower and lower. And the key is to always fly within your limitations and to never and, and to always leave yourself an out and to never push it to where you're not feeling 100 percent or 150 percent. I want to feel like I know that I can do this 150 percent of the time. Yeah. This isn't just something I'm going to do in an air show. That's where people get in trouble, you know, trying something new um, in a dangerous environment. You know, you want to practice it in a safe environment, and then, then you know that you can do it, if that makes sense. It does. You mentioned that you, you, you start off by doing many of the stunts or tricks up high. Is that because uh, by doing them higher in the event of a mistake or error, you have time to recover? Absolutely, yeah. It gives you lots of lots of room to recover. Um, so, and I still do that. You know, I still go up and practice up. I also practice down low when I have an air show coming up. But uh, yeah, that that's how you stay safe. I have your videos pulled up here, and I'm just watching so many amazing things. Which of your tricks is, for lack of a better term, the most fun? The most fun. Um, you know, it's really putting the maneuvers together and making them flow together that's the most fun. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's really energy management and coming out of one maneuver where you're fast and then, you know, bring, and then climbing and then doing something going up where you can, you know, use that energy to do something that requires a lot of speed. And then when you're slow, what are you going to do there? And, and so it's really putting it all together. And that's hard to to come up with a good routine where it really flows. Well, that, that makes me wonder, how, how do you plan it? Like you're saying you're enjoying the process of them, of maybe one trick going to another and there's the whole thing of it. Almost, yeah. My first thing I thought about was, was like a figure skater. They have their, their jumps, but in between Very they kind similar. of put them all together. How do, you, how do you plan those and how do you prepare those? It's so similar to figure skating in a way. I mean, it's, it's all, you know, when a figure skater goes into a triple Lutz, let's say, yeah. or a, any, you know, they have to have, they have to, they can't just start it from a slow speed. They have to have a lot of speed. They have to set up for it. And that's all part of the choreography. So it's the same with us. And, you know, you have this routine and you have to vary it a little bit depending on the day. You know, it could be a windy day and it, you, know, you have to adjust, but it's hard to change one element of a routine um, because it changes the energy flow you know from one maneuver to another so you really have to have sort of a set framework that you can work within okay yeah now you achieved many many awards based on your stunt flying including being inducted into the national aviation hall of fame when you look back on your awards which one are you most proud of well i'm very proud of that of course mm -hmm. being in the hall of fame it's sort of surreal um um a couple i think Winning the U.S. Nationals, um, being the first woman to win the U.S. National Aerobatic Championship, I'm really proud of that. Um, that was that was a goal that I set for myself that took seven years or more, and uh, a lot of people said it couldn't be done for some unknown reason at the time, and so that's you know really important to me. And and winning the um, National Air and Space Museum Award for Current Achievement was a really important award for me too. I'm really honored by that one. One of the most fascinating things about your career is the fact that with these stunts, you've actually turned this into how you are an asset in in other forms of flying. For instance, you worked with the Kenya Wildlife Service. What was your role there, and, and then what was your time in Kenya like? So, yeah, the, the thing about aviation is that 
it really you can take it in so many different directions. Um, you can teach, you can do air shows, you can be an airline pilot, you can, and it, you meet people. You know, you have sort of instant friends anywhere in the world because of flying. You have this this you know this thing in common. Um, yeah. So I started in 2001 in Kenya, um, giving training to the Kenya Wildlife Service pilots. So the Kenya Wildlife Service has about 12 to 15 pilots who patrol all of the national parks in Kenya. Um, they're really um, they they look for poachers. Um, they're very important to the um, anti-poaching um, uh, to poaching pro- to the poaching problem there. Yeah, and to the anti-poaching effort. Um, they they do surveys. They relocate animals. They do. Um, they're really very important to Kenya, and um, so I've been doing that since 2001. I've been there about 10 times, so I I'm still there, um, sort of chief instructor, I guess I guess. And um, my Kenya Kenya title is Walimu, which means teacher. So mm-hmm. so I've been there a number of times. I have a lot of friends there. I I love my time there, and it's been one of the kind of one of the most rewarding things I've done in my career. And I feel that we've really, um, I, I always bring one or two other instructors with me and I feel like we've, we've really made a difference in, in, because it's such a small sample, you know, you can be in a big, say aviation, your whole career and you can be, you can talk about safety, you can teach, but, but there's so many people in it. But when, when you have a small sample of, of few pilots, and not that many airplanes, you can really, I think you can see um, that your work has paid off, you know. So the last time I was there was um, last year and um, hoping to go next year again. I mean, I mean, it's fabulous. You can do these stunts that are that are great and wonderful for air shows and provide entertainment. And then you, you turn that into a way to, to help and to, to protect wildlife in Africa. I mean, what a, what a fantastic thing. But you weren't finished there because another amazing experience was you worked with cal fire supporting firefighters from the air in california uh, i mean that's yeah. just another incredible thing of your life it's it's so much uh what were some of the challenges that came with flying into these dangerous fire zones i flew for them for three years um 10 2010 11 and 12 um i really miss it i i um I've thought about going back and doing it again. Um, you know, it's really wonderful to be part of a mission like that where everybody works together. Um, you know, you're at the, at the fire base, um, all day pretty much into the evening and you wait for an alarm and your plane's all ready to go. You throw your boots on, jump in the plane and you're off the ground in five minutes. Um, so, and then the other planes are, in the air, you're all working together. You're working with the firefighters on the ground. So, so the whole mission aspect of that, uh, it's probably a little bit like being in the military in some in some ways. You know, um, it was super rewarding, super exciting. I love love that aspect of it, and I really missed it when I when I left. You know, having that, you know, and it was nice. You know, you wake up in the morning, and the only decision you'd have to make is what T-shirt do I wear with my flight suit today? Yeah, and <laughs> it was. Uh, we could wear white or blue. That was it, or gray, I think. So um, it was um, it was really a fantastic experience. Were there additional dangers just being around the flames and the smoke? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're flying in all different conditions. And I was based in California for you know for Cal Fire, and so you're flying in a lot of canyons, a lot of mountain, um, a lot of mountainous terrain, um, and 
yeah, very smoky conditions. Sometimes you could barely see where you're going. That that could be a challenge. Um, the smoke was interesting. It would get all over the plane. I found, you know, you, by the end of the season, you're coughing a lot. Mm. Um, you try not to apply through smoke that comes from structure fires because of all the stuff in them. You know, the hazardous material. Forest fires, wildland fires aren't as bad to fly through, but um, yeah, you know, turbulence, um, most of the fires heat up in the afternoon. Uh, so there are some definite challenges with that, but I started flying in Alaska, right around mountains. So, so I had the right experience for it in Kenya too. So, um, so I had the right experience luckily. With the terrain, your air shows flying in, into danger zones like fire, danger is obviously omnipresent while you're flying how do you mentally and how have you mentally prepared yourself to constantly be in the face of danger and but also to do your job and do it right and stay calm well it's about controlling first of all it's about having the right skills and that's really important there's no shortcuts to any of this you can't just you know jump in it and go um sometimes i find people sometimes um want to take shortcuts and I'm like, it's a long, hard road. You know, it takes a long time to get to the point where you're prepared for these kind of things. And you have to do all the right training. You have to do all the steps. You can't, uh, again, I mean, you just can't, you can't miss out on any one element of of any of it, of any of the training or the background that you need. Um, or And sometimes you have to, sometimes it's really about judgment. So, some of the things that you get yourself into or that you find, your, you know, situations you find yourself in, whether it's, patrolling for wildlife, flying through the mountains, flying an air show, you can't practice for everything that happens, you know. Mm. So so a lot of it's about using good judgment and and having a sense of maturity, not age so much, but maturity. And, um, and then having good airmanship skills, just basic airmanship skills, where you know how, how to control an airplane, how to use the rudders. Um, having aerobatic training is usually helpful, and that's that's really what's given me the skill to do all these things is doing aerobatics. Do you have an aircraft white whale that you'd love to get behind the uh, controls of? There's a couple of airplanes I'd like to fly, a couple of warbirds, you know, World War II planes that I would like to fly. I'd love to fly a bear cat. Um, there are a couple of uh, military trainers that, I, that I'd like to fly, uh, PC-21. Um, there's, there's a few. I've flown a lot of the planes that I wanted to fly. I'm looking, I guess I need a new challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Flying in aerobatics has taken you just around the world, and you've had just these amazing experiences. And we talked about Kenya, we talked about California, but what have been some of your most memorable trips? I flew some air shows and contests in Argentina. That was pretty amazing. That was really fun. Uh, I flew in Russia with the Soviet aerobatic team. Yeah. That was unbelievable, because I was there right after the uh, the Soviet Union fell, and it was Russia. It was about a month later, and that was that was very interesting. Um, we were there on an invitation, invitational uh, visit to train with the team. And um, to be there so soon after and see some of the statues that have been toppled in yes. Moscow, that was unbelievable on the flying. My, so until then, that was 91, so it was a long time ago, but I'd been competing with the Russians against the Russians at the World Aerobatic Championships several times by then. And um, the... Uh, the first day, one of the one of their team pilots um, took me flying to give me a tour of the local area that we we're going to be flying in. And it was on the Volga River, and we climbed up. We had to get through some clouds, so we climbed up above some clouds, and then we 
then we descended back down over and we were over the Volga River flying upside down a month after the Soviet Union fell. So we, I mean, we were, you know, that whole area had been closed off to yeah. to us for years and decades. And uh, to be able to, to do that was just so surreal. It's like, you know, sometimes you just kick yourself. You can't believe. So I've had some, you know, some, some amazing experiences flying around Central America, uh, flying air shows in El Salvador, Honduras, places like that. Um, so, yeah, every day is a new adventure. You know, it's it's about if you have the opportunity, you won't, I've always felt if I have the opportunity, I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah. You know, I'll find a way to make it happen. You know, it's an amazing opportunity to be invited to fly a show in Honduras, let's say, and go, I'm going to, you know, I'll do it. I may not make a lot of money, um, and it might be a really hard trip, and there's things I'm going to have to deal with along the way, but it's, how can you, how can you pass something like that up, you know? I mean, I I certainly can't. On, On some of those long trips, do you fly your stunt plane the entire duration, or is it transported in a different way? No, I fly it. Whole way. If okay. I'm in Europe or something, I'll usually borrow a plane over there. But I have taken my plane over to Europe a number of times on a C5A um, that we leased from the Air Force for the aerobatic team. But I've also flown shows in Hawaii where we took our plane on a on a C5. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What's uh, your favorite type of landscape to fly over? Mountains, water? I'm not. I love the water, but I'm not fond of flying over it because there's no outs. There's nowhere to land. You'd have to ditch. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like, um, you know, the beach. I fly over the beach here all the time in Florida where I live. And um, if I'm up with a student or just just going up on my own for some reason, I um, I usually take them down low over the water and look for dolphins. And you know, right. I'm I've flown. I've done a lot of mountain flying and all that, but I, I don't. My favorite flying is probably just tropical, you know, like cruising down the beach, I guess. Wow. What an incredible woman. For more information, check out pattywagstaff.com. And to listen to her episode, check out, epi- check out, to listen to her full interview, check out episode 74, which was first released June 2nd. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento. Aviento.